Well, good morning, church. How's everybody doing? All right, all right. We have a few announcements to get through this morning before we get into the Word. But before I do that, my name is Marty. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with the uh, youth group um, on Monday nights. So if you have any 7th through 12th graders that haven't plugged in yet to Impact Youth Group, we meet here every Monday, 6.30 to 8.30 at the church. Um, We just finished up a series through the book of Jonah. We're going to take a couple of weeks to do some topical stuff. Um, But then in a couple weeks, we're going to jump into the book of Ruth. And so um, you're never going to come at the wrong time. You're always going to jump right in and get plugged in. And we've had a lot of new faces this year, which is super exciting to me. Um, But speaking of youth group, there is no impact tomorrow night. I just wanted to make that clear. Um, I sent a message out to the parents WhatsApp group, which by the way, we have a parents WhatsApp group. So if you have a student from seventh through 12th grade and you're like, what is going on in youth group? What do you do? All of that. What are the happenings? Get plugged into that and I can get you into that group. Uh, Along the same lines, um, in a couple of weeks here on the 21st, we're going to be having a youth leaders conference here at this church. We're hosting one for the very first time. So if you personally are interested in helping with youth or have helped with youth in the past or work with teenagers in any capacity and have the desire to learn to grow deeper in how to reach the next generation with the gospel, sign up for that event. See me, I've put it in our private Facebook group, but I have also posted it on the public page. Um, But if you're interested in that, the cost is $15. It's October 21st from nine to three here at this building. We won't keep you all day or anything like that. It's uh, some time for worship, fellowship, diving deeper into the word, growing uh, in different breakout sessions and stuff like that. So if that interests you, I know that there are some people here that may not serve in our youth group here, but maybe help out elsewhere uh, in regards to reaching the next generation. So get plugged into that. Also at the end of the month, and I mentioned this this past Monday, we are having a youth retreat uh, in Sarver on October 27th through the 29th. So it's a little weekend fall retreat with another youth group from a church in Wexford. Um, and, but the campground itself is Christ is the Answer Retreat Center, and it's in Sarver slash Saxonburg area. Uh, so it's really close by, but it also feels like you're a little separate for a while. So if you're interested in that, uh, cost for that is $25 a student, but every friend you bring which is interesting because if it's your first time, I imagine they would count you as a friend. Uh, But it's only $10 for a friend and that covers everything for the weekend, which I think is an absolute steal. So if you're interested in any of that, just see me after and I'd be glad to get you more details about that. Also mark your calendars, October 25th. I believe that's a Wednesday night. Yes, okay, I don't know. I'm not looking at a calendar. Our worship night. Okay, we're doing worship in the round here at Redemption Church. You definitely want to be there for that, 7 p.m. It will not be traditional worship where we are up here and you are down there. We're going to be down there with you. And you're like, what does that look like? Well, come find out, okay? It'll be an awesome time. We're really excited. I know India and Greg especially, they've put in a lot of work behind the scenes. And then the worship band as well is, is going to put in a, a lot of hours just rehearsing and getting ready for that night. So come out uh, and worship Jesus with us. And then two more, sorry, there's a lot of announcements this morning. This seems to always happen whenever I'm preaching. But um, baptisms are November 5th. So for those of you who I've already talked to and, and gotten your testimonial video, well, well done. Uh, two weeks left for everybody else. The deadline for the video is October 22nd. So just keep that in mind. But we're having baptisms November 5th at both services. Listen, I'll take people that day who wanna be baptized, who have professed faith in Christ. I don't care. But if you're interested in that, uh, on the connect card, you'll see that there's an interest in baptism. You can go ahead and fill that out. Drop it in the, the offering bucket at the end of service. And then um, I'll reach out to you at some point about that. 
And then lastly, you'll see, I know a lot of you have been asking about it, especially you overachievers who are ahead. I'm one of them. <clears throat> but the New Testament reading plan are out there. So take one of those. This is the perfect opportunity for anybody who began and is continuing on, like, hey, I'm right there. For those of us who began back at the beginning of the year and have kind of fallen off and they're like, oh, I don't even know where I'm at in the New Testament. Guess what? Skip all that. You can come back to it. Jump into the New Testament with us right now. Or if you're brand new here, which we've had a lot of new faces since we started this reading plan, grab a New Testament packet and read along with us. It'll be great. You'll notice though that just the way the reading plan printed out, and this is kind of on me, but I blame Fred. Um, and you'll notice the New Testament does not start with the book of Ezekiel. And you'll notice something weird about that. You'll have to skip like the four week blocks and you'll see where Matthew is. Start there and that'll, that'll send you on the right track. And I think that's all the announcements I have. The only other thing I wanted to mention that's kind of, uh, it's not really an announcement for us, but just be praying for the nation of Israel. I'm sure most of you are aware of uh, just the happenings over the last uh, 24 to 48 hours and everything that's going on over there. Um, Greg made me aware that there's actually some brothers and sisters in Christ from uh, the church that he came from, from Harvest. They're over there right now. And um, it seems as if they're gonna be able to get flights back home and everything. But I know uh, someone personally this morning, I just saw she's sitting in the same airport that I sat in over there. I was like, she's in Israel, oh my goodness. And so um, not only for the people that are stranded there that we know, but for the people of Israel themselves and just pray that God's will would be done. I know it's just a very tragic situation, but um, just keep them in your prayers, okay? Well, we're gonna be in Revelation chapter five today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Before I jump in and read the scripture, there's a couple of housekeeping items that I wanna address before we dive in this morning, okay? Especially as we have recently, I believe it was last week, concluded the, the letter narrative aspect of Revelation and we've now entered into a new vision of John. It's here that the book takes on a much more apocalyptic tone from here on out and rather quickly, we're gonna see things like weird and strange animal imagery, uh, a much more symbolic way of explaining things, uh, catastrophic natural events, lots of death throughout this book, things like that. And with that in mind, there's a couple of things I want you to, to remember. First, if, as I've studied this book, both now and in the past, I came across this quote that I think helps me and I hope helps us not get lost in the weeds with all of this symbolic talk, okay? Uh, which by the way, let me just encourage you, be doing the hard work. Don't just expect to show up on Sunday and get all the answers that you want from us. You study the book. Take those four views that Fred preached on in week one and go through the book of Revelation. We're covering 13 passages. That does not cover the span of the entire book. Do the work on your own. Take those four views of Revelation. Uh, formulate your own stance and interpretation of the certain things in this book. Have some convictions about that, but don't let it distract you from what this book is truly about. Remember week one, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so keep that at the forefront of your mind. But this quote from, uh, his name is Alistair Begg. He, he's an author, pastor. He's the voice behind uh, Truth For Life Radio, if you're, you listen to that. Um, the quote goes like this. He says, when it comes to the book of Revelation, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. 
So don't get so lost in the, and you're, you're gonna see today, it's very easy to get lost in all of this, this symbolic imagery that you see and you kind of, you might miss the tree through the forest kind of thing. And I don't even know if that's how that expression goes, but I know what I'm trying to say. So keep up with me, but don't get lost. Keep the, the main things are typically the plain things and the plain things are typically the main things. So don't get lost here. Second, keep in mind that John's primary concern for the readers, which includes us today, is not the how and the when. It's not about how these things will unfold or, well, when will that happen? And, you know, I was listening to this guy on the radio the other day and this, he said it would happen this way and at this time. It's not about that. It's more about the who and the what. The who and the what. And today you'll see why that's important. But lastly, it's important to keep in mind that throughout this book, it's not necessarily about what happens next but simply what did John see next? This book is not linear in time where, okay, if it's written in this order, this must be the way it's going to unfold. Not necessarily. John is being given these visions. It's almost as if he's being invited to take glimpses inside this massive mansion of knowledge and he's peeking through one window at a time that Jesus has allowed him to gaze into and see not necessarily what happens next, but simply what he sees next. Look for phrases like, then I looked or then I saw, okay? That makes sense? Okay, so allow, us to, allow me to catch us up where we are in chapter five because we notice we're skipping chapter four, but in chapter four, we're now ushered into the next part of John's journey, this new window, and this is what he saw first, a throne room. And not just any throne room, but the one where all the attention and all the affection are fixated on one particular throne that's amongst many that are there. And it's there that John sees God himself seated upon his throne and he has 24 elders and four living creatures surrounding him. And it's believed by most, I would say, at least according to my research, that these 24 thrones and elders which surround the main throne of God are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles themselves. So if you think about that, these no doubt make up the sum of God's activity amongst man. The 24 elders are the perfect representation of the fact that God has been and will continue to be intentionally involved in and amongst his creation because he pursued them, he loves them, he keeps hold of them. This is the completion of God's work among humankind and they're represented in the throne room. And what are they doing? They are there worshiping, casting their crowns before him. But that's not all that's there. There are these Four creatures that were introduced to flying around, or maybe they're, they have wings. I don't know if they're actually flying or not, but each has, is described having six wings, eyes in the front and the back and on the inside. One is like a lion and one like an ox, one like a human, one like an eagle. Now, again, there are Bible scholars who interpret these creatures as representative of the whole creation, representing things like nobility, strength, wisdom, and swiftness. I don't know about you, regardless of all of that, I don't know if we're supposed to take these things literally. That would freak me out. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Who knows? I guess we'll find out one day. But remember, plain things, main things. Main things, plain things. Don't get lost, but simply think about it. You know what this tells me? Mankind is not the only one worshiping God in the throne room. It's not just people. 
It's all of creation. All the attention, all the glory, all the affection is honing in on this one throne. So where are we this morning in Revelation 5? We are in the throne room of God and this one throne is the base. It's the heart. It's the center. It's the focus of ultimate reality. I don't want you to miss this. This is not some future thing that's way off in the distance. This is the reality that God is on his throne right now, present day. And this inexplainable reality of what that is, what that looks like, so much so it's kind of hard to describe using human words. And John does so to the best of his ability, but this is reality and John saw it. And so this is where we are. So let's read as we move into Revelation chapter five, I'll read the chapter and then we'll jump in. Revelation five, verse one says, then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said, then one of the elders said, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. See, this morning, I wanna draw three, three phases of events that unfold in chapter five. These will be part of filling in the blanks or jotting down uh, if you're taking notes. And after, after we observe what the word of God has said, we'll make one simple application at the end. But before we do that, let me pray and we'll jump right in. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you are worthy, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world did come and he, he fulfilled your will by dying on the cross for our sin, offering us the free gift of eternal life. Father, that he is seated at your right hand. Father, that he, he now holds the scroll. Father, we give you all praise, glory, and honor this morning. And I know people come in here with all kinds of distractions and with burdens and with worries and with anxieties. God, allow us to just cast all that aside for a few moments as we center around your throne and learn more and more about you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so if you're following along, let's look at point number one this morning, which is the dilemma. And the dilemma is no one was found worthy to open the scroll. There's a dilemma here. I'm sure you picked up on it in the first couple of verses, but no one was found worthy to open the scroll. This vision of the heavenly throne room that began in chapter four has continued here with a new and very specific detail. And that detail is that in the, there is in the right hand of God a scroll. It is described as having been sealed, closed with seven clay or wax seals. And this kind of scroll would have no doubt been familiar looking to John and his readers. It was the same type of scroll that would have been used for all kinds of various types of contracts or wills. I mean, this was not something necessarily new to his mind, but the difference is, is this is the scroll that's in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And all of that is well and good, but what in the world does this scroll represent or what does it mean or what are the contents of it? Well, I think the most obvious place to start is this. Since God is the one holding the scroll, it must represent a decree from the king of the universe. It's a message from him. It's a plan or something from God. And the fact that we learn in verse three that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open or look in it suggests that these things, these are things that we at least have no business knowing or cannot comprehend. We're not really told that. We are not worthy enough to know them. That alone we do know. We are not worthy enough to take this scroll and to know what it says. So Bible scholars can sit around all day and debate about the content of what's written on this scroll. But I believe as we move through the remainder of this book, this scroll that we're introduced to here will no doubt be fresh in our minds as we watch the unfolding of many significant events. I think it seems safe to say that the content of this scroll could be summarized this way, that this is God's ultimate plan yet to unfold in its entirety, because we're still here. His plan has not come to fulfillment yet. It is his purpose for the entire universe, all creatures and all ages into all eternity. It is full, it is complete, and it is his comprehensive, detailed, unchangeable plan for his creation. But John cannot read it and nobody can, seemingly. And we have to remember, Revelation ought to be a book of comfort for the church. This should not trouble us in any way where we seek answers to these types of questions. This is a book of comfort. It's almost as if John is saying, I want you to lay hold of this great truth. God is on his throne. He's sovereign over all things. He has a plan and he's in control. That brings comfort. See, things are going to get much worse. We're going to see that very clearly as we move throughout this book. So Jesus reveals to John these visions to comfort and encourage God's people through persecution, tribulation, and trials of many kind. Now, through all of this, God has a plan in his hand. A plan to make all things new, to bring righteous judgment upon the earth once and for all. And what is more comforting as the church, as believers, knowing that God's plans are set, that he is sovereign over all things, and that above all, he is good. That should comfort us. 
Despite whatever persecution or trials we may face, we know that God is sovereign over all things and that he is good. I believe that we'll see as this book unfolds, regardless of where we land interpreting this or that, one major truth is, is that God's plan is being fulfilled. And that plan in large part is about the finishing or completion of his wrath upon the earth. Because when we take these opening verses along with what we'll see throughout the remainder of this book, I think we can confidently say that this scroll represents the decree and plan of God to bring ultimate justice upon the earth by unleashing his wrath on unrepentant sinners and in turn pouring out reward and rest and grace on his people once and for all. And the opening of the scroll will confirm that. But here's the thing, there's a problem, there's a dilemma. It's sealed. And as, a number, as the number of seals indicate, seven, it's perfectly and divinely sealed. And only one who is worthy will be able to take the scroll, open it, and carry out the plan of God that it represents. But again, as verse three indicates, no one, not a single created being was found to be worthy to open this scroll. And because of what appears to be the impossibility of justice finally being realized. I mean, imagine John sees this thing that represents everything being made new once and for all. All of the the people that have oppressed and persecuted God's people are finally brought to judgment and the the martyrs and the people who have suffered uh, from, from past up until that moment when everything is fulfilled are finally vindicated now it's impossible because no one can enact this, these events to happen. The seal is, or the, the, the scroll is sealed. And what's John's response to that? The only thing he can do is weep. He's so distraught because it's almost like we were, were this close, but no one is found worthy. That's the dilemma we face in this chapter. But praise God, as we've already learned, there is a solution to this. So point number two this morning is the solution. We've seen a dilemma, but is there a solution? There is. The solution is indeed there is one who can open the scroll and his name is Jesus. Indeed, there is one who can open the scroll and his name is Jesus. Jesus. I want to go back and reread verses five through seven because I don't want you to miss some of the things that John says. Verse five says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. That's what he says to look at. But then he says, then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So what is described to John by the elder is a conquering lion figure. So imagine someone says, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the messianic king, so to speak, and you look up only to see one like a slaughtered lamb, bloodied up. So which is it? Is it the conquering lion 
Or is it the slaughtered lamb? And the answer to that question is an emphatic yes. It's both. He is, in fact, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That is a direct reference to Genesis 49.9. He is the root of David, the offspring of David, a title derived from Isaiah 11. He is the lamb, a title based on a whole host of Old Testament verses that I'm not gonna go over, two of which are the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And it's made explicitly clear in the New Testament as we're about to jump into in the Gospel of John uh, Chapter one, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him as he's baptizing people, telling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he sees Jesus coming and he looks up and says to the crowd, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no argument, not one single argument, not one doubt that this figure that we're talking about here is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the one who was slain as the Lamb of God. He is the one who told his disciples on the night he was crucified, told them a lot of things in the upper room about things that were to come and things that were to happen and things to prepare for and things that they ought to do and to look out for. And he says in John 16, verse 33, I have told you all of these things so that you may have peace. And I'm, uh, What's interesting about that is as I'm reading through Revelation, and trust me, when you start reading through Revelation, you're like, say what is about to happen? This is gonna happen? What? Some crazy stuff is gonna go down. And I have no idea if, it'll, if we'll be here for it. It all depends on your interpretation of it. But either way, it's about to go down at some point. And I imagine as we're reading this letter, I hear Jesus whispering in my ear, listen, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. Have peace about this because I'm in control of all of it. And he tells them, you will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. Why? Because I have already conquered the world. And notice what John tells us in verse six of this chapter, that he saw a lamb with seven horns. Okay, what? I don't know if you've ever seen a lamb before. They don't have seven horns. Now it's important to know that throughout the Old Testament, the horn is simply a symbol for power. When you combine that with the number seven, the number of completion, it becomes clear what this imagery is trying to communicate to us. He has complete power. He has total power. But not only that, we're also told that he has seven eyes. Again, lambs don't have seven eyes, okay? This description is explained for us as a reference to what this passage says is the seven spirits of God sent into all of the earth. Now, if you look back at Revelation chapter three, verse one, it's not gonna be on the screen, but just mark that. You'll notice that Jesus is referenced as the one who has the seven spirits of God. But like before, with the horns, this image also has roots all throughout the Old Testament. This is why studying the Bible is the coolest thing, because you start to connect these dots. Specifically in Zechariah chapter four, verse 10, Zechariah has a vision. He sees a lampstand with seven branches or spouts, kind of like a menorah. And he's told, these seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth. So between chapter four of Revelation, verse five, which we'll see in the throne room, there are seven torches before the throne and chapter five, verse six. See, we're seeing the same type of imagery over and over again, the lamps, the eyes, the seven spirits of God. Do you see how easy it is to get lost in this book? 
Because you can get so hung up on what do these things mean? And well, I read this interpretation that it means this and it means that. Listen, main things, plain things. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about Jesus Christ. So why is Jesus described so differently in this chapter than how he was portrayed in the vision of chapter one that Fred preached about a couple weeks ago? Both visions were communicated to John and from John to us using a lot of symbolic language, but they seem to emphasize different things. Why? What's the difference here that wasn't represented in the beginning in chapter one? The scroll, the plan of God, the ultimate plan for humanity. And not only that, but the fact that the lamb is taking the scroll. Listen to what the final verses of chapter six tells us as this scroll has been opened. I forget what, it'll be on the screen. I believe it's verses 16 and 17. We read that kings, nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, every slave and free person, essentially all the people of the earth, hid in caves and were crying out to the mountains and to the rocks. This is what they were saying. The most powerful people on the earth to the weakest on the earth, they're all hiding out and they're saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? This right here confirms this, the identity of the scroll. It is God's decree of ultimate justice, which has to, it has to because of sin include his wrath. Why can't God just come and snap his fingers and everything is made well? Because then justice would not be brought forth. But here, it's not simply God's wrath. It's the one seated on the throne and the wrath of the lamb. It's their wrath. That is the wrath of God and the, la the wrath of the lamb. Therefore, it's important. I'm gonna go back to the seven eyes now. It's important that the lamb have complete power, the seven horns, and all of this, and complete knowledge of what's happening throughout the earth, the seven eyes. See how that all kind of starts to make sense when you just keep the main things as plain things and you don't get lost in all of this different interpretive stuff, okay? And all of this is simply keeping in the fact that he is also, in addition to that, having complete power and complete knowledge throughout the earth, he is, in fact, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He's fulfilled all of those things. As a matter of fact, last summer when we were in the book of Psalms, Fred preached a message on Psalm 2. Mark that down. Go back and read that throughout this week. Uh, the, you can even go back and listen to the, uh, the sermon. It's called When the Nations Rage. That psalm tells us about this coming Messiah. And you'll see what kind of power and knowledge and authority he has when his enemies are made his footstool. But not only that, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul himself spoke in Athens of the Messiah's role in the coming judgment in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, where it says this. Paul says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, that's an understatement, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Who or, or how? Through it says, by the man he has appointed. And, he's, and just in case you're wondering, okay, is that somebody else? He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now there's no question about who he's talking about. This is like a royal decree of sorts by Paul. And indeed, there is one deemed worthy to open the scroll. But again, the scene doesn't end there. 
So we've seen the dilemma and we've seen the solution. But uh, thirdly, this morning, I wanna see the response. There's a response to this. It doesn't just, the solution isn't just offered and everybody's like, oh, okay, cool. Sounds good. Cleared things up for me, God. Cleared things up for me, Jesus, John says. Cleared things up for me, John says in this book. Let's just close it and we don't need to look at anything else. No, there's a response. And that response is that the whole of creation falls down and worships the one who alone is worthy. The whole of creation falls down and worships the one who alone is worthy. Think about what's being described here in the final verses. I'll go through some parts of it. They'll be on the screen later, but I'm not gonna read the whole thing. But on one hand, we're seeing the response of heaven and earth. We're seeing the response of all of creation, right? The response of all of creation to the solution, to the reality that God's will will in fact be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praise the Lord for that. And it is the lamb, it is the Messiah who will carry out this divine mission of ultimate justice. That's on one hand, we're seeing that. But on the other hand, what we find here is simply an amazing revelation of the lamb's worthiness. And I wanna make sure that you walk away today understanding how worthy he is. These verses fully answer the question, why is the lamb the only one worthy? Why is he alone worthy? There's been some other great men before Christ who maybe Jesus comes in for round one and then after a while he comes back and tags Moses in for, for a chance or something. I don't know. Why is Jesus the only one worthy? Verse five told us he could open the scroll because he has conquered. But just so there are no misunderstandings about what that means, verse nine expands on that word conquer where it says this, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. The lamb, Jesus Christ, is worthy. And he alone is worthy because he did what no other earthly king could ever do. He was perfectly obedient to God his entire earthly life, and he continues to be that way for all of eternity. And because of that perfect obedience, he alone was able to then give his life as a ransom in order to redeem, to reclaim, to rescue a people from, it says, every region, from every race, from every class, from every corner of the earth. See, the cross that we celebrate, right, is where the lamb was slain and where he gained ultimate victory all at once. He conquered through the laying down of his life. No other earthly king would ever imagine doing something like that. As a perfect man, without sin, God has appointed him to perfectly judge the sin of all mankind. Who else could do that? Who else could be worthy enough to do that? But his worthiness is also evident simply from the worship that he receives. I mean, I don't know if you read what we just read, but I love this. Verse 12 says that the voice of many angels and the, the living creatures and the elders, everybody said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. That is sevenfold praise. 
What does the number seven represent? Completion. Complete praise is given to Christ and to Christ alone. Uh, What's interesting is the only other time that we see this type of praise in the book of Revelation, this sevenfold praise is in verse 12 of chapter seven. Just you can mark that down. I'm not gonna read it, but that you'll notice that in that chapter, the praise, the same sevenfold praise, almost verbatim, word for word, is directed towards God, the one seated on the throne. And you know what's interesting? As just a little sidebar before I, I'll connect the pieces here. You know, twice in this book, in Revelation 19, verse 10, and uh, 22, chapter 22, verse 9, John actually attempts to honor and worship angels on two occasions. He attempts to bow down and worship angels who have communicated or relayed a specific message to him, but he's corrected immediately both times never to do that, but to worship God because of the testimony of Jesus. See, he's told creatures must never worship other creatures. That's silly. Creatures must only worship the creator. But do you notice no one in heaven in chapter five is corrected when Jesus is praised the same way that God is praised in chapter seven, verse 12. The exact same words are used for both. In chapter five, they're even worshiped together. Did you see it? In verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say, blessing and honor, glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and forever. And then verse 14 says, the four living creatures said, amen. And they, the elders fell down and worshiped. You know what that is, by the way, in verse 14? That is the reckoning with the only throne and the only hope that we have. You know, the word amen means so be it. That is, the, that is the, the response of all of creation to the fact that Jesus Christ is the only one worried to carry out the ultimate plan of God for the remainder of creation. And you know what they say about that? So be it. Amen. We agree with that. Yes, he is the only one worthy. There's no question. There's no doubts. There's no, whoa, what about this? No, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So that throne right now is surrounded by elders and their thrones and the living creatures and they've said, so be it. There's only one amen to be laid down and that's the fact that Jesus Christ is worthy. He alone is worthy, not only because of his perfect humanity, but because of his perfect deity. He is both worthy to take the scroll and he is worthy of our worship right now. So those are the three phases that we kind of walked through. And very quickly, you'll see the last thing on your handout. That was the response of all of creation. But my question to you is, how will you respond? How will you respond? Because I want to tell you, and I need all eyes up here. Right now, every single one of us has an invitation into this reality. Again, remember what I said at the beginning. This is not some future event. God is not going to be seated on his throne down, uh, down the road some ways, thousands of years from now, hundreds of years from now, 10 days from now, whenever, Jesus, I don't know. God is on his throne right now. He is being praised and honored and glorified right now. The lamb is worthy right now. And we have an invitation into this reality. And it's a free gift offered by the lamb himself who gave himself for you and covered your sins on the cross. And he offers you a free gift of eternal life. And here's the thing though, one day it's gonna be a reality whether you want it to be or not. The Bible says, 
that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Not only if you agree with it, one day you will bow down to Christ, whether you want to or not. And yet he offers you himself right now freely and says, come to me. See, there's so much in this one chapter. I think two, three messages wouldn't be able to dig out all the good, good stuff in this passage, but hopefully I've made sense of the basic elements of this scene in Revelation chapter five. And I want us to think about how this vision should impact our spiritual vision, how you see God, how you see yourself and how you see the world around you. Because this is reality. You may not see it in this realm, but this is ultimate reality. And you will see it one day if you are in Christ. The Lamb's reception of the scroll makes all creation, heaven and earth, rise up, better yet, fall down in worship. Was that your response to hearing this type of information? Or are you like, cool, I don't care. Or sure, I agree with that. Maybe you threw out an amen, maybe you nodded along, maybe you took really good notes, but was your response worship? Now, when you think of Jesus, when you think of him as the slaughtered lamb of God, of his loving sacrifice and his cleansing, liberating blood, when you think of him as the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, when you think of his authority, when you think of his coming judgment and wrath, does it make you worship? Does it drive you towards praise and adoration of his name? See, we desperately, church, I don't care about whatever else is going on in your life right now, we desperately need to see Jesus for who he is. This is not little baby Jesus that we picture uh, from Christmas time, swaddled up in, uh, they always make him look so much more comfortable than it probably actually was. This is not baby Jesus, this is not the humble carpenter from Nazareth, no, this is the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, and this is the root of David, this is the messianic king, this is the slaughtered lamb who has conquered Will you worship him? What we see here is that the fullness of our worship of Jesus is directly linked to how well we understand the fullness of his worthiness. Your worship will only be as much as you understand how worthy he truly is. Now, let me be clear. Even a slice of truth about Jesus can lead you to worship. But when that slice expands when you consume more and more of Jesus, which I'm telling you right now, I wanna see that table empty. We'll print more for the, or for the 11 a.m. service, but like get into his word. Know him more because when that happens, our worship will deepen. You understand we're gonna be worshiping for all of eternity because it'll take eternity, never ending amount of time for us to be able to fully understand the, the fullness of his worthiness. We'll need all of eternity to be able to worship him. And I'm not simply talking about just gaining more knowledge about Jesus. I'm talking about combining knowledge with faith in order to be personally convicted about our sin, form personal convictions about reality, about what really matters in this world. And what does that look like? I, I'll go back to what scripture says. Think of the words and phrases we saw in the final section. It says they fell down in verses eight and 14. They sang in verse nine. They proclaimed with a loud voice. Verse 12, now kneeling, singing, shouting. Those are all classic expressions of worship. We find them all throughout the Bible, but even more important than these outward expressions is the kind of heart that would lead you 
to kneel or sing or lift your hands. See, I don't see anything in this chapter about the elders and the four living creatures having good pitch, knowing the words, liking drums or an electric guitar on stage. No, I don't, I don't hear anything about them complaining about the volume level in the room. They're not distracted by any of that. Why? Because their focus is on Jesus Christ. I don't care about any of that other stuff. And I'm not just talking about here while we sing. I'm talking about throughout your life. What are you looking at? What are you focused on? Because I'm telling you, if you focus on the things of this world, you're gonna be distracted by the fact that Jesus deserves your full attention at all times and deserves your worship and everything that you say, do, think, whatever. John's heart broke. He wept for the fate of a world that evidently would not receive divine correction or comfort in the beginning of this chapter. Now, if our response to the reality of Jesus is one of worship, shouldn't our response to life marriage, a family, a community without Jesus be one of weeping? You can't come here and get excited about Jesus and want to worship him, but then when things, when you look at the world that is so Jesus absent, it appears, it should break our hearts. We should weep for those who are apart from Christ. Does your heart break like John's when Christ is noticeably absent from a needy heart, including your own? Our hearts cannot burst with praise for Jesus, but then fail to have his heart for a lost and dying world. So you need to ask God, ask God this morning for a heart full of Jesus and for a heart for those who are desperately empty without him. And please do not walk away from this chapter without a clear sense of the radical uniqueness of Jesus, our conqueror. I'm weird and I like heavier music. I know that's a weird transition, I'm sorry but there's a specific band who has a, has a song that's about the, the heart posture, about bowing. Everything in life ought to bow to the name of Jesus because he alone is worthy. And in the middle of the song, the singer yells out these lyrics or I don't know, this phrase, whatever you wanna call it. And he says this, this ain't hype. This is about supremacy. This is declaration. I'm here to tell you that this book from cover to cover, isn't just hyping Jesus up. Jesus doesn't need a hype man. He doesn't need me up here to tell you about how awesome he is or Pastor Greg or Pastor Fred or Sean Fenn or whoever. He doesn't need you to convince yourself that he's awesome. Listen, this is about the supremacy of Christ. That's fact. This is a declaration that I'm making of a fact that is, there is no one like him. There never has been, nor could there ever be anyone like him. He's our only hope because only he has and can make things right. He can do that in you and he will do that in you if you turn to him with a sincere heart of worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. God, I could repeat that forever. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you are. Not only that, Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us. What a hopeless reality of those who live their lives in rebellion against you or apart from you because they simply don't understand that you have revealed yourself to all of humankind in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And we stand here today, many in this room know who you are, but maybe grow cold or numb to that reality or get distracted by the things of this world and they take their focus off of you, which makes their, their heart posture bend toward the things of this world and the worries and cares of this world and they, they stop worshiping you. But I pray that this morning we would center our hearts around you and understand the fullness of your worthiness so that we in turn give you the fullness of our praise and adoration and worship. And God, I know there's people in this room that do not know you or don't understand what that means. If that's them, Lord, I pray that you would just prick their hearts this morning, uh, convict them of the reality that they are separated from you and that the only way back to you is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, that they would just be drawn to you today. Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray for anybody who couldn't be here or whoever's listening online. I pray for the church worldwide, for our brothers and sisters in Israel right now I know that are suffering. Father, I just pray that your name would be made great among the nations because you were slaughtered and you purchased a people that are representative of every tribe, nation, race, class, and you alone are worthy to enact the plan of God for all of humanity. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.